Welcome to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire, a series that digs deep into the life and works of one of the greatest novelists of all time. Hi everyone. Today's guest is the Tony Award-winning director Tim Carroll. Tim is a former associate director at Shakespeare's Globe in London, where his productions of Richard III and Twelfth Night, starring Mark Rylance and Stephen Fry, took both the West End and Broadway by storm. Tim is now the artistic director of the Shaw Festival Theatre in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, where his celebrated adaptation of A Christmas Carol is playing this December with a 12-strong cast. But before Tim left for Canada, he also directed another A Christmas Carol, which I perform as a solo piece each year in the UK. Both these carol adaptations are linked by the brilliant puppet creator Mandarava. But more of her in a moment. Christmas has come to the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, and we are standing in front of the memorial clock tower. It's minus four, and the snow is falling. Perhaps a mist has rolled off the lake because the tower, the shops and houses, are a painted watercolour. And through the wonders of felisticated heliography, the faint outline of doors and windows are slowly appearing in the middle of pavements and in the sky above our heads. One of the doors seems to be transforming itself into a desk, and we can see Tim in his office opening his mail. Let us go in now, and with all the energy of Scrooge's nephew, Fred, say hello. Hi Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you Dominic, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I, I can't believe it's December. I can't believe we've got to this point again. Me neither. But we're here because we both love Dickens, and uh, you have the distinction of having adapted A Christmas Carol twice. Um, and I suppose the main focus of this conversation is really to talk about not the one, not to just drag you here so that you talk about our one that we did, but to really talk about the one that you're doing uh, in Canada right now that's coming back. Coming back for the fourth year at the moment uh, here in Niagara-on-the-Lake. How much of an affinity then do Canadian audiences feel for Dickens or, or A Christmas Carol? Oh, I think it's every bit as much a standby in Canada as in Britain. We're not the only theatre by any means to have a, a pretty much annual Christmas Carol offering. Right. Well, as you know, he uh, was hugely um, popular in North America during his life. And I don't think that's ever changed. And there is a great... Um, streak of Anglophilia in Canada, uh, alongside a great streak of Anglophobia, it must be said. Yeah. But the the people who really uh, cleave to the mother country find Dickens an extremely uh, congenial companion. Yeah, I can well believe that. Um, I suppose the first things that I wanted to ask you, I don't think I ever really asked you when you were back in the UK either, these questions, but what are your earliest memories of Dickens yourself? Uh, well, they're not very early, uh, interestingly, because mm. I didn't really study English literature at school. I was, for, for a variety of reasons, I was at Manchester Grammar School and I was in the uh, ancient Greek and Latin stream and uh, taking my O-levels and A-levels as they then were a year early, uh, which a lot of us did at Manchester Grammar because we all thought we were very clever. Yeah. And, um <laughs> The payoff for that was that we didn't do an O-level in English literature. So apart from a few vaguely remembered classes of reading out loud Merchant of Venice in my first or second year, 
we didn't really do literature in English. And then I went to university and studied ancient Greek and Latin there. So it wasn't really until I was into my 20s and working away from home in Exeter that I set myself to get up early every morning and fill in the gaps that I'd realized I had in literature. So I, I had a year and a half of getting up at six o'clock and reading till nine o'clock every morning. And it got me through all of Tolstoy and Eliot and um, Dostoevsky and, uh, and the rest of it. And especially it got me completely hooked on Dickens. The first one I read was Great Expectations. And I just couldn't get over how funny it was. I thought, why has nobody told me how funny this guy is? So that totally changed my vision, really, because all I'd seen before that in my life were things like the Muppet Christmas Carol and so on, which mm. were very charming and all the rest of it, but give you quite a misleading idea of how edgy and funny Dickens can be. Yes, you don't get the biting satire, do you, in a lot of the adaptations? And yeah, and I, I'm always astonished at how funny he is. I've just started, you've read this because you've read all of his, haven't you? But I only mm. just started myself reading Barnaby Rudge. And I'm yeah. and just just the descriptions of Grip, the Raven. I could lift those all out and just read those all in sequence. I mean, they're hilarious. He is a really fascinating writer, and he's particularly good on animals. And as we know, he had a raven of his own, so he knew whereof he spoke. Yes, I have to say, just reading reading this last night a little bit, I, I was thinking, I was aware I was going to talk to you this morning, and, and thinking that that could be a show for you to adapt, because I could imagine Grip as the Raven being quite a, a fancy puppet that could tell the story of that. Mm, so, okay. Not a bad pitch. Thank you. Because <laughs> I don't think it's, I know, to my knowledge, it hasn't really been adapted. But um, so, so that's interesting. So you came to Dickens reasonably late. You were, as we all are, aware of the, the adaptations uh, a little bit that, that are out there. But of course, reading and I've only read, I should say, obviously, your Shaw Festival production. But something that struck me from reading this adaptation is that it's so much, it's as much a carol concert for the audience, isn't it, as, as the telling of the story. And mm. I seemed, it reminded me, I'm sure you mentioned um, to me a long time ago that you had the solo in one of the carol concerts when you yourself were a tiny Tim of Once in Royal David City. Have I remembered that correctly? I, I wish you hadn't. I wish I hadn't. <laughs> Deny it, but yes, I, I was that cherubic and extremely evil choir boy. I see. Ignorance and want as well as a tiny Tim then. <laughs> so there's a heck of a lot of ignorance, my goodness. Not, not, not all that much want, really. Traditional Christmas carols then musically are, are important to you. Do they feature a lot for you in each year? In this production, they do, yes. And it's been an interesting journey over the last three or four years because one of the things that is quite controversial these days is uh, carols that are too overtly Christian. Mm. So there has been a sort of gentle pressure from my colleagues to do a little bit less of, um, of the Jesus-y ones and a bit more of the we wish you a Merry Christmas ones. And, you know, in some cases you can get away with you know, the holly and the berry is extremely sort of generic, as long as you don't get to the bit about how the, the berry is the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins, etc. At which point, there are quite a few people in Canada who worry, understandably, although I don't, I think they overdo it, but they worry that if you aren't a Christian, you'll feel excluded by that. That's funny, isn't it? I, I wonder how Dickens himself felt, because he I, he would have identified, I think, as as Christian, but at the same time, he really understood the wider world, didn't he, and other people. 
And what's so lovely about A Christmas Carol itself is that his message has a lightness of touch. There's no sermonizing and there's no sort of Bible bashing on people. That's right. And, you know, there is a, a nice little bit in the the scene where Bob Cratchit has just come back from church with Tim and he mm. says that Tim said he hoped people would see him in the church because he hoped it would remind them of who made the uh, the cripples walk, yeah, who made the lame to walk. And so there are explicitly Christian references, but I agree with you that Dickens' Christianity is extremely sort of what you might just call theistic. You know, he, yes. he felt that there was a divinity in the world. He felt that the story of Jesus was uncontestably a good example to the rest of us and that what he had preached was sort of self-evidently right and that we should all be doing it and that if doing those traditional ceremonies together helped us to be kinder to each other why wouldn't we do them i think as you imply that it wasn't <clears throat> wasn't especially a question of belief for dickens i don't think he gave it much thought whether he believed it or not no and if anything i think the story is very much about here and now on earth and what we can do in our lives rather than any kind of afterlife or path to that afterlife perhaps i think in terms of christmas traditions i mean i don't really understand the pagan roots of it i haven't looked into that but I love the Christmas tree and the decorations and the feasting and the caroling itself that I think used to go on for three months or something, traditionally, <laughs> which might be a bit much. Um, yeah, I, I can well understand that. But I, I imagine that, well, I can tell that it's a very sens sensitively put and Dickens puts it sensitively himself. Um, yes, I was just remembering about a mighty founder was a child himself, something about being children sometimes. Yes, with Fred's party as well. There are little glimpses, aren't there? But I suppose what's wonderful about it is just the speed that he wrote it in just six weeks when he himself was suffering from depression and he was in very severe financial difficulty, yet he manages to rise above all that. How has it been in COVID times coming back to having the theatre dark, to having audiences back in there again to, to enjoy this production? I have to say it was a bit overwhelming the first time I uh, went in to watch uh, I think the first preview because I, I I got there as is my wont at the last moment and mm. just sort of said, "Oh, I'll sneak in at the back," and the ushers said, well, "There aren't any seats," and I went, "What?" And sure enough, I glimpsed through, and there's a full house. And I have to say, a, a lump rose in my throat. Yeah, at, at the sight, um, I just slid into the the little glass booth for the ushers and watched from there. But it was kind of, um, it, it made the hair stand up on my neck as well, just the, the excitement for the actors. There was a yes. couple of moments when, you know, at the end of a number or something, when the audience would all clap, that you could see uh, the actors were really sort of, <laughs> this is a rather ugly image actually, but they were like addicts sort of mainlining their first hit in two years. <laughs> Yeah, I can well, I can well believe that. We've made some changes, of course. Um, the audience are all wearing masks, as mm. you'd expect, and um, we have a, a rule here which everyone is happy with. I must say, audience and company, uh, which is that you have to show your proof of double vaccination and your identification before you're let in. Which um, I wondered if audience members would be grumpy about, but actually, you can see that they're very reassured that mm. they're sitting among uh, fellow sensible people. And the other thing that we've changed, well, two other things. One of them is it used to be a sing along carol concert, and now we do actually say to them, uh, maybe just let us sing for you this year. Mm. And and they get that. 
they get yeah. that because there's been a lot of stuff in the papers about how big groups singing together is asking for trouble. Yes, the contagion rolling over seats and things. Yeah. So, yeah. so, and we actually we've left the first two rows of the audience unsold so that there's a good big moat between us and the audience. You mentioned a moment ago about uh, I think Great Expectations being your first Dickens that you read. Mm. And being surprised how funny it was. And I, I have to say for myself that the funniest moment of any Dickens I ever read, I think, was the description of Pumblechook drinking the tar by mistake and the description of his spasmodic whooping cough dance outside the window. I, 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 and I remember just being so astonished, as I think you, you imply you were too, that something written so long ago can produce today that same level of kind of mirth and laughter actual belly laughing uh, i remember when um pip comes back from miss havisham the first time and they're determined that extraordinary things must have happened and so he invents the carriage with the people waving flags and it, i think he and miss havisham were waving flags at each other in his invention of what happened and i i was just laughing my head off reading this yeah it's it's, it's wonderful isn't it and um there's also another because i remember i read great expectations and david copperfield when i was 17 and actually i preferred great expectations because i was it held my hand more as a reader i was more able to understand everything whereas david copperfield those long uh letters and and, and speeches from mr micawber kind of didn't quite get it but there's this moment where at the end of one of the chapters, Dickens literally sort of says, pause, you who read this, I may be slightly misquoting, but he's talking about, think about those moments in your life where you took a key decision and your life went one way. Now consider what would happen if you didn't go the other way. And he even uses a chain metaphor to talk about those first links that you create yourself in a good way or a bad way. Um, it made me think of something you, you told me a long time ago and sort of Christmas is past of you watching the series playing Shakespeare by John Barton on the television. Yes. And you, this was definitely a, sh a shadow of things to come, <laughs> you getting frustrated with one of the actors not taking direction. Um, do you want to pick that up? Because I think that's a, a wonderful sort of key moment for you in terms of the path that you took. Yes, I'm not a theatre person by uh, upbringing or temperament. You know, I was lucky enough that I went to see some good theatre as a young person, but I'm not one of those people who put on shows in the front room for their parents. And so I didn't leave school thinking I'm going to go to university and do nothing but direct plays and become uh, a, a, one of the theatre crowd. So it really did hinge on this moment when I was watching Patrick Stewart doing uh, a bit that John Barton was directing him in. That was one part of the show. And then Richard Pascoe was doing Orsino in a different bit. And uh, in both those cases, when I was, as you say, shouting at the TV, it was actually my father, whom I'd only just met a few months earlier. Um, I'm 18 years old and I've only just met my dad and he sat there watching me watch it. And it was him saying, wow, you really hear the difference, don't you? And I said, well, don't you? And he said, well, yes, but it, it, it doesn't go through me the same way it goes through you. You, you have a, an ear for it that is just um, natural. And so that did set me thinking. I bought the book immediately and read it uh, several times through and wanted nothing more than to get some actors together and uh, bark at them. 
and not let them off the hook like Barton had. Yeah. I mean, what a wonderful story. I'm so glad I remembered that right. Uh, that, that's, that's extraordinary. And of course, something else that I remember from, because we at drama school 20 years later, we were watching John Barton's playing Shakespeare as something right. to put... You didn't have to, you didn't have to rub that. <laughs> but um, the, um, when John Barton's trying to give an example of blank verse, he turns to David Copperfield, which I just think is an interesting point that Dickens himself, in his prose, buries these perfect iambic pentameters. I think it... I might get this wrong, so I might cut it. But if it's made it onto this episode, I'll be really pleased. But Tim, I think it goes, O Agnes, O my soul, so may thy face be by me when I close my life indeed. Yeah, it's the last lines of the of the book. And, uh, and I do remember him quoting that. And indeed, Dickens himself was aware that he did it. There's a lovely letter in which he said... Uh, I know I fall into iambic pentameter. People often point it out to me as though I should be ashamed of it, but I'm not. I'm just steeped in it. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he had, a, I think John Forster gave him a, a mini collection of full, complete works of Shakespeare that he carried around in his breast pocket. You know, he, and he didn't need it because he had the complete works of Shakespeare in his head. If you mm. read his letters, you, you cannot... Uh, get over how often he quotes Shakespeare, and not just the famous bits. He will throw in little lines from Act 4, Scene 3 of Coriolanus in the middle of a letter. And uh, I'm someone who thinks he knows his Shakespeare well, but it's nothing compared to Dickens. Yeah, yeah. I really want to ask you, and this does relate a little bit to, to the Christmas Carol that we worked on together, which is the rules of adaptation. So the first thing that I'm very curious about, because I remember that when we were working on it and we had our single puppet of Scrooge, mm. that everything was imagined, all the ghosts, the spirits, you never saw them. It was always in the audience's imagination. And in a way, I think we'd felt we dodged a bullet because mm. there was that you got around that problem of going, oh, Marley looks like that. Oh, I didn't think he would look like that. I'm not sure about this bit or this bit. How have you managed in this production then to... Have your spirits visible? How, how did you go about doing that? Well, it's a very good question because you're right. There is always the tendency to think, um, I wish we didn't have to come up with anything. And this is what we love about reading books, isn't it? Is that our minds are filled with our own imagery. The simple answer is we did bloody great big puppets. Right. So Jacob Marley and the Ghost of Christmas Future are both uh, huge puppets up on poles operated by three people. And the important thing in both of those cases is that neither of them has a face. Jacob Marley is, in fact, just a, a huge version of Scrooge's own coat and hat, hmm. animated, but with a gap where the head would be. So That's it's clever. just a hat floating above the coat and gesticulating and, and big boots underneath as well. The Ghost of Christmas Future is, is uh, actually made of Scrooge's own bed sheets, which suddenly take shape and fly out of the bed and become a 15 foot tall ghost through which you can just glimpse a skull occasionally, but it's very subtle. The other two are people. We have a very small girl plays um, the ghost of Christmas past, mm -hmm. uh, a little sort of kid with a balloon. Uh, the balloon is the moon, which is rather beautiful. And she's on a swing, is that right, if I remember? Yeah, she enters on a swing, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then the ghost of Christmas <laughs> present is a sort of Christmas pudding with a candle burning on top. Um, <laughs> and he comes on on roller skates and uh, skates around and is actually kind of very annoying because he, he never remembers anything that's been said to him. So he... <laughs> 
he, he skates around in the room and comes back and says, who are you? And Scrooge says, I told you who I am. And he says, when? And he says, just a moment ago. He says, ah, but that was in the past, you see. I'm yes, yes. I love that. Yeah, no past to recall at all. So I think what I think what you've hit on then with, with the ghost, certainly the ghost of Jacob Marley and the ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, is that you've managed to tread that fine line of not revealing everything, but just showing something and giving impressions of things. So not having the face. And I like the idea then. So was it the case that many of the spirits then were modeled a little bit around the bedsheets where Scrooge finds himself anyway on Christmas Day when he wakes up? It was certainly that we, we wanted everything in some way or other to come out of what was already there to be a transformation. So the, um, the Christmas present is actually a transformation of a pile of Christmas presents. And, and <laughs> yes. he enjoys that. He enjoys that terrible pun much more than we do. Yeah. Although there are terrible puns in the original, aren't there? You know, there are there gravy are. and all of that. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Yes. One of my favorites. I wasn't going to cut that. You can be sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. And, and actually, what I also love about it is that Dickens then immediately afterwards says, Scrooge was not much in the habit of telling jokes, as in, <laughs> as in he doesn't do it very often. And I'm taking no responsibility for that awful pun myself. Well, you know, we, uh, we have a moment in the show at the end when he greets Mrs. Dilber and finds that his bed curtains haven't been torn down, um, where the actor playing Scrooge is licensed to tell a joke. And then actually to say, I made a joke. And to, to <laughs> delight in the fact that he just made a joke. And so he has to tell a different joke every night. Have you caught him sort of falling back on familiar ones that he's tried a few nights back? He owns up when he does that <laughs> in, in great shame. And it's usually because he did find a joke that day, but he loses his nerve at the last moment and thinks, no, it's so lame. I can't use it. Yes. But I, I love that little moment, certainly in the original, where is that sense that Dickens is playing with us right from the very beginning and, in, and loving every moment. The, the Marley was dead to begin with. You know, mm -hmm. what? Um, one thing that um, is missing from every adaptation, I think, is the reference to Hamlet's ghost, Hamlet's father walking the battlements at the beginning. You just can't fit it in, can you? You think this is a theatre. It's crying for this adaptation to have that reference to Hamlet in there. And yet there's no place for it. I was wondering. It's because also nobody cares. Nobody <laughs> in our audience cares whether there's a reference to Hamlet or not. No, no. It's, it's, a, it's a bitter lesson to learn. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what's interesting, what strikes me about this, having having listened to you read your Virginia Woolf, your your flush adaptation, is with that, it's it's slabs and slabs of thick narrative spoken. Mm -hmm. But then with The Christmas Carol, which is so famous for its narrative passages, in your adaptation, you're straight into dialogue, you're straight into action, which I find really interesting. How did you arrive at that decision to not have the whole Marley was, you know, going through it in a way of this is now stave number two, stave number three kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Well, I think in one sense, the show we did together cured me of that because I <laughs> I don't mean cured in in a vicious way I mean yeah. that it you know we'd had the pleasure of having lots of lovely narration while we watched Scrooge going about his business but I was very clear from the start I think that it's very difficult to put Dickens on stage because a lot mm -hmm. of what you love is the uh, the description and the author's witty voice you've got to get over that and just pretend it's not there yeah. 
you know, because if you're always pining after, oh, there's that lovely stage direction, you know, it's a, it's a thing about those uh, writers from Dickens all the way through Barry and Shaw that they waste, from our point of view, a lot of their best writing on stage directions. Now, in in Dickens, it's not wasted at all because he knows everyone's going to read it. And indeed, in Shaw and Barry, they know that most of their audience is a reading audience. So they do pour a lot of wit into their stage directions that you often are tempted to find a way of getting into the stage version. But it's a snare to be avoided. Yes, Yes, and I can well see that. And actually, do you know what? Having looked at Charles Dickens' own adaptations for his reading tours, he mm-hmm. he rips chunks out of it. He's he's more brutal with his own words than I think anyone else I can I can think of. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think that I remember when we were adapting our first one t- together, that sort of emboldened me looking at his cut to think, oh right, so he's cut huge chunks of the descriptions of food around the Ghost of Christmas Present. Well, let's put them back in. Let's have it. But I, I find that that's really interesting and, and something and a principle that you you told me 12 years ago, I think, was that um, drama is action, isn't it? That is what the word itself means. Yeah. You have to be, people have to be doing. So, yeah, I can see that. And um, just reading through your script, I wondered at one point whether I'd sort of dreamt it, but I think I wrote it down. There's a little moment where you see soldiers playing football, which I think is a lovely moment. And of course, that's post-1914, isn't it? It, It's nice that you've spotted that. Almost nobody ever comments on that, but it is a little anachronistic Easter egg that I put in there as something everyone knows happened on Christmas Day and which had a completely Dickensian spirit about it. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely something that's important to us today, isn't it? And it's nice to have that scope to, to, to include that. And something else that you, with the, is it right? Did I read this right? That the Cratchit family, the children, Tiny Tim and the brothers, they're puppets as well in the show. Yes. Tiny Tim is a, a lovely puppet made by uh, the wonderful Mandaraba who made ah. Scream for your uh, Christmas Carol. I first met Mandaraba because she was the daughter of uh, Roger Butlin, a very wonderful designer, friend of mine. And um, I watched a little puppet presentation that she'd put together about her brother who had very tragically died of a brain tumor and she'd she'd made a beautiful puppet installation about him um so a a little bit later when i was doing a asis and galatea the opera i asked her to make some puppet asis and galatea characters because we needed a perspective shift um we there's a giant in asis and galatea the Polyphemus, the Cyclops, comes in and has to tower over them. And so rather than make a very big Polyphemus, I thought, what if we made Asis and Galatea very small so that a human could tower over them? And I really thought that was going to be a kind of cute, uh, charming theatrical trick. And then the very first time we rehearsed with those puppets and did the scene where uh, spoiler, Asis is killed, crushed under a rock, thrown by Polyphemus. And you have this lovely Handel music uh, as um, Galatea sings her grief over the dead Asis. Watching this little puppet manipulated by Mandarava, watching him breathe his last and lie dead on the floor, and watching Galatea, operated by Mandarava, singing her grief, We got to the end of that number and all of us in the room were in floods of tears. Mm. 
And I suddenly went, this is much deeper than I imagined. This is much deeper. It's not just charming and cute. It's actually profound. So that was the moment I realized that puppets can actually move us in a way that perhaps humans can't. And that by doing that extra work that we do when we watch a puppet of projecting onto immobile features, all of the emotions that the words and the music are making us imagine, we actually see it more deeply than if someone was showing us. Um, and that's why when you and I did Christmas Carol, we have a Scrooge whose face is extremely abstract and you can imagine it with almost any expression. And that's also why when we came to do a very puppety Christmas Carol here, I asked Mandarava to, to make Tiny Tim. Yeah. And her Tiny Tim is, is full of love and hope and you can feel the audience uh, fall in love with that Tiny Tim more than they could with some little precocious child actor. Yes, I can, I can see that. And actually, what I find <laughs> fascinating is just looking at those two puppets, the puppet that Mandarava created for your Tiny Tim and the one for Scrooge earlier, they look their worlds apart from each other in the way that they appear. I mean, I noticed that uh, Tiny Tim has these sort of bright blue eyes and hair, very realistic hair, whereas Scrooge, as you said, has so much missing in terms of expression that we then project onto him. What, what were... What was it? Because I, I remember when we were rehearsing The Christmas Carol, I remember the moment you said to Mandarava that you didn't think that Scrooge should have hair. And then if you think of the John Leach illustrations, he has long, straggly hair. And so what what do you think were the reasons then for, for having such contrasting puppets that then really serve the two different pieces? Well, Tiny Tim is seen on stage among other humans. So to have him very abstract would look uh, very strange, I think, and would set up a different kind of theatrical language. He's not super, super realistic in the sense that he is sort of a little bit rough and a little bit like a child's drawing of a boy. Hmm. But, but he is realistic enough to, um, to not to convince us he's real, but to not um, break the laws of the language that we've created in the show. Um, but he, I suppose he needs to he needs to appear mortal though, doesn't he? Because you have puppets for the spirits as as well. Then, so he needs something then to make. That's right. the The spirit puppets are very abstract, so therefore he needs to look human, and he needs to look mortal because we need to be worried in case he's going to die. And he also he only really has one setting, which is uh, optimism. Mm. So therefore, he's able to have one kind of. Uh, very human, wide-eyed expression. Whereas Scrooge, who goes through so many different phases in the story, as a puppet, I don't think you could afford to have a realistic face because it wouldn't work for all the modes that he has to portray. Yes, no, I can see that. And, and I'm sort of astonished how people always felt that Scrooge's face changed in R1. I never quite believed that until we filmed it. And then I could actually genuinely see that with everything happening around him and the story telling that his expression does appear to change. And that's the sort of magic and mystery. But I know that you're also a big uh, believer in puppets as a process for rehearsing, even if the end result doesn't involve puppets, that it's really good for actors to, to use them. I completely agree, but you put it better than me, the reasons why, I think. 
It's very good for actors to work with puppets, whether or not they're going to be in the show, because it makes them get outside themselves and leave themselves behind. There's nothing more liberating, uh, especially with singers, actually, than listening to a singer who is not singing through their own voice, but singing through the, the mouth of a puppet. Now, that's a sort of romanticized way of putting it, because, of course, they're singing through their own throats and their own mouths. But because they think they aren't, it actually does have a very direct physiological effect, which is that their throats relax and there's less tension, less effort, and they make a better sound. And this has been proven time and again. The same goes with actors, that their voices tend to be liberated by voicing a puppet rather than speaking for themselves. And their acting is often liberated because they are uh, looking at what the puppet needs rather than thinking about their own performance. And as we know, the devil wants you to think about your own performance. The devil wants you to, to think, oh, I'm not shouting enough. Oh, they don't think I care enough. Oh, they don't think I'm grieving enough. And that's when you start to push and shred your voice and do all sorts of demonstrative acting. But when all you're doing is thinking, what does this puppet need to express and how can I help? It puts you in exactly that unself-conscious state of mind, which I think makes good acting. That's fantastic. And, and um, how do you deal with, um, you know, the charge laid against Dickens about sentimentality? Do you think that's a fair charge that's put against him? Oh, 100% fair, yes. Mm. Um, and I think the point about Dickens is that he would mostly plead guilty, you know, that mm. he, I, I think he would have laughed at Oscar Wilde's line about, you know, no, you'd have to have a heart of stone to read The Death of Little Nell without laughing. Yes. I think uh, Dickens himself would have laughed at that and probably agreed, but he would also have said, you have your audience and I have mine. Mm. So on stage, I think it's, uh, if anything, a little bit easier to get away with. This is where the songs come in useful because we're used in the world of musical theatre mm. to pretty full-on uh, slushy nonsense, you know, and we surrender to it. And I, I wouldn't say this is slushy nonsense, but certainly the the transformation, the hope that goes into the night when he's asleep while we mm. wait to see how he'll wake up on the real Christmas morning, that hope, if the piece has done its job at all, is very real in us. And if you back that up with a song, as we do with the, the group coming in and singing, then there is actually something a little bit irresistible about it, that the audience gets itself into a place of going, come on now, come on, mate, come on, you've got to wake up and you've got to be changed. Yes. And one of the things you will have noticed in my adaptation is I cut out, not for length or any other reason, but dramaturgy, I cut out all of the references, all of the times that Scrooge says things like, I'm listening, spirit, don't worry, I'm a changed man. Mercy, already. mercy, forbear. Yeah, all of that. Oh. Yeah. And, and not just the forbear, but also the kind of, oh, yes, I will listen. Don't you worry. Oh, I will be better. Yes. I've cut out all of that so that he hasn't given any indication by the end whether he's going to change or not. I wanted it to be perfectly possible for us to think that he's going to wake up and go, well, thank God I got through all those idiots. Now, who can I rip <laughs> off today? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely what I remember actually from R1 as well. In the first cut that I sent you, you made me excise any moment, pretty much any moment where Scrooge has softened, because obviously in the novel he softened straight away. The first, the first trip back to the school 
with the ghost of Christmas past and he's almost penitent and those lines about, oh, I I am learning the lesson that you teach me, oh spirit, and, and all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, on stage, that's calamitous. Yes. Because, um, we're so far ahead of what's going to happen. It, it, we could just sing along from that yeah. point on. I, I remember when we were working on on the carol and we got to stay four and um, we're, we're arriving at the churchyard and I was going full into my sort of uh, spooky voice acting. I don't think it was quite as bad as that, but I just setting up the graveyard oh, was... Yeah. <laughs> setting up the graveyard with that sense of foreboding that this is now, you know, because you also know that the audience, a lot of them know what's coming, but you you made me go cold on it. You made Scrooge not know what this was still. What is this? That it was almost matter of fact. So that's it. I thought that was an interesting choice. Have you done that again for the shore, that same idea when he's approaching the, the tombstone? Because I can't see that from the, the script, obviously. I think when he gets to the graveyard, it's kind of the final moment where we as, as the audience are thinking, oh, come on, you must know it's you by now. And that's the delight of it, is that by then, we're almost gleeful when he wipes the gravestone and sees Ebenezer Scrooge, because he's been so obtuse leading up to it, that it's not so much that I wanted him to be cold as optimistic. Mm. I love my characters to be optimistic, because it makes the tragedy worse. It makes the shock worse. Mm. So for him to go up quite casually thinking, well, probably some one of those chaps I used to work with on the exchange, and then to see his own name and for it to knock him sideways and to see what we love seeing, which is everything else falling into place, that he suddenly realises those people were laughing at me. Mrs. Dilber stole my bedclothes. Uh, all of that is um, terribly satisfying. Yeah. And I think also something else that I remember that when when Scrooge is confronted with his name on the tombstone, that in his appeal to the ghost, he's not just falling to his knees in prayer. He's actually saying he's saying, no, you're here precisely because you're going to help me out of this. This is what it, this is right, isn't it, spirit? He's actually fighting, not yielding to overthrow this this future. And then when you move to stave five, which is in the original is slightly if you're adapting it, I think, unhelpfully titled the end of it, <laughs> right at the start. You see that at the top of the page. And I remember, you know, that whole thing about the bed was his own. And it begins with the word, yes, yes, he's home. Everything's here, the curtains, everything. But I remember that, and I found this was interesting because this was a penny drop moment for me as well, just in terms of you can change the punctuation. You're allowed to do that. I felt like that was almost sacred, weirdly. So we put question marks at the end of it. So Scrooge is waking up and it's the bed was his own you know he's he's searching all the way through and i think that's really important as well isn't it very important to to watch someone piecing it together rather than already knowing it all the the flip side to optimism the reason why i always talk about hitchcock's great line of um you should film your love scenes like murders and your murders like love scenes is that when things are terrible the character should be optimistic but when things are wonderful the character should be at the very least careful and unsure. If he immediately wakes up and goes, hey, hey, everything's great, it's actually not as exciting as us knowing everything's great and nodding at him going, yeah, yeah, check that as well. Yeah, go and look outside the window. Yeah, ask Mrs. Dilber. We want to see all the stages of gleeful, joyful relief and 
realization. And of course, but and actually Dickens helps us with that as well, because he has work to do, doesn't he? He goes out into the streets and suddenly he sees the portly gentleman coming towards him and that pang across the heart. And, and that's difficult. Yes, but it's gleeful for us as the audience to watch that. We want to see... We're brilliant at forgetting things as an audience. When we see the portly gentleman in in that last scene, we all go, oh my God, him. Oh yeah, he could put that right. We'd totally forgotten that that was an option. And it delights us while at the same time making us go, oh, why didn't I think of that? Yes. So this is where on stage, again, you get a sort of a bonus, which is you are controlling the passage of time on stage in a way that you can't quite in a novel. And in other words, you know, with a novel, you can put it down and have a think and stop and think, well, why hasn't Scrooge worked out it's him yet that they're talking about this guy who's died? But on stage, you can keep finessing that and throwing enough new things at Scrooge that it's quite plausible that he's sufficiently off balance not to have realised who the dead person is. Yes. Something from stage four, which I don't think is a spoiler for your production, is the character of Mrs. Dilber, Mm. who obviously makes an appearance as the woman with the bedsheets with old Joe. She features quite a lot in this production. It's a shame that she's not in the first stave, really, Mm. I think. Uh, I think it's sort of, you know, again, maybe it doesn't matter in, in a novel, but in a play, you can't introduce someone sort of two thirds of the way through the piece. You can't introduce a new character and expect us to care about them. There's just a kind of cast iron rule that we we think of them then as people who don't belong in this play. Hmm. And so if you want someone to matter a lot when they come in later, you either have to introduce them or you have to talk about them a lot. And neither of those things happens if you don't actually add Mrs. Dilber into the first scene and show him being a dick to her. Yep. And and what's um, what's lovely, again, I hope this isn't a spoiler, is I got from reading it that there might be a potential companionship, romance even, between the two of them later on? Uh, there's a playfulness about it. And uh, our Mrs. Dilber is is only sort of in her early 50s and very good looking. So there's no doubt that the audience thinks, uh-huh. you know, mm. <laughs> you'd, yes. be a fool, you'd be a fool not to at least investigate the possibility, Ebenezer. And, and on the subject of Scrooge, then, you've had, a, you've had quite a lot of time to think about him as a character. And I find myself more and more just thinking that he's brilliant and always has been, really. It's just that he's suppressed that side of himself through fear and pragmatism and other other thoughts that have governed him. That actually, we're talking about the sentimentality in, in Dickens. Mm. And I find that I am now quite used to delivering the Cratchit family scene and getting through it without sort of choking on my words or getting a little, you know, overcome or anything. But there's a moment that catches me. And I remember the first time it caught me and it threw me right off guard where where Scrooge is at his nephew's with the ghost of Christmas present mm. and they're playing the parties and they just, God, I can even feel it now. It's just extraordinary where Dickens, after having spent the entire book up to this point, really laying into Scrooge, says how brilliant he is at guessing and getting those answers right because he's really sharp. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that so affecting. I don't know. Well, you know, I, I'm, I, I take that very, very much as a personal compliment because everyone uh, at the Shaw Festival refers to me as Scrooge. They all, <laughs> um, they got, they got me a T-shirt that said "Bah Humbug." Yes, uh, because they, they find it very amusing, as I think you did at the time. That um, I'm someone who personally 
would be perfectly happy if Christmas never happened again. And <laughs> I don't have any interest in it at all, find it a complete grotesque waste of time. Um, and yet I love the message of a Christmas carol and, mm. uh, and you know, I buy into it wholeheartedly. But, um, but for me, there's no doubt that the most attractive character in the piece is the person who is brilliantly sharp has seen through the nonsense of the world and just wishes everyone would leave him alone i uh, in my most arrogant moments which is to say most of them i identify 100 percent with him that's so interesting that's so interesting but we all know that you have a heart of gold tim that you're a legend sir but uh, you're not fooling anybody I, I'm, I'm a little bit i'm a bit fed up with this notion the more i say it the more everyone uh, oh, nonsense nonsense yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think I, I do think in some ways that though Dickens was Scrooge as well as the nephew Fred I think there's Scrooge and Dickens that he has to sort of overcome and certainly towards the end of his life he fell a little bit out of favor with Christmas when he was on this treadmill of writing Christmas story after Christmas story and and I, I can see that yes but I just I just well think and he he was he was worried as you say he was worried about money mm. and uh, and he did have a, a big side from you see it in the letters which is, as you know i've i read all the letters some years ago because i just find him so fascinating you see again and again in the letters he's worried about money and not just worried about it but really sort of impatient with people who don't take it seriously yeah and so i i really admire that in dickens that his generosity and he was very generous his generosity was not thoughtless or easy he knew the value of a pound he knew how hard it was to to pick yourself up off the floor if you were broke. And he remained generous in spite of that. Yeah, absolutely. And he had to pedal very fast, as I said previously, in, in, his, in his life, didn't he? And because of his upbringing and the hardships that his father went through and the family being in debtor's prison and all of that, he, always, he was always aware of how he could fall. And, well, and he says at one point, around about the time of the reading, uh, the writing of Christmas Carol, that he, I'm misquoting it horribly, but he, he makes a reference in one of his letters to uh, dragging parents and children and useless siblings along behind him like balls mm -hmm. and chains, which is kind of interesting. It's almost like the Marley image, but in reverse, that he's, yeah. he's dragging actual obligations as opposed to missed opportunities. Yes, and, and good old Jacob Marley as well, procuring the ghosts. I find that extraordinary. Yeah. He sets it up for Ebenezer, and it's sort of so, it's so, it's not really explored, is it? We don't really know how or why he's done it. And then does he benefit from it himself? Does he ever yeah. attain freedom? I don't know. Yeah. A final question for you, Tim, which was to, to say, are there other Dickens Christmas books that you've delved into that interest you? Um, not Christmas books, I don't think. Mm. Um, I mean, I like... Um, I, I don't go mad for, for any of them very much. I think the cricket on the hearth is very strange. Um, mm. And the chimes is, is kind of, I like it, but I don't think it would work. I actually really like Mrs. Lirriper's Lodgings, which is very um, unknown these days. And huh. George Silverman's ex Explanation. I'm not even sure that's a Christmas one. But um, no, I've always felt a little bit with Dickens that actually they don't necessarily lend themselves well to adaptation. I think the Christmas ones more than anything else because they're short. I yeah. do find, uh, I'll take your question somewhere else and say, I would like to adapt Great Expectations one day. It's not my favourite. My favourite, of course, like everyone, is David Copperfield. But um, and, and I think the best is Bleak House. But Copperfield is my favourite as it was Dickens. And mm. 
And yet, when I've seen Copperfield on stage, I always feel like, oh, what a pity that, you know, Rosa Dartle has one line or something. Mm-hmm. And Miss Julia Mills, you know, uh, Dora's romantic friend who's who's always writing these ridiculous diary entries uh, <laughs> of, of terrible poetry. Um, yes. She doesn't even appear in any adaptation of Copperfield because there just isn't time for her. So I think if I... If I do a Great Expectations, it would have to be a kind of six-hour. I was going to ask. I was going to ask. Did you ever? Did you ever see the the Nicholas Nickleby, the RSC, the famous RSC one from the eighties? I saw Roger it on Reece. TV. I saw it on TV, which yeah. isn't the same. You know, I, I could see that in the theatre. It must have been very uh, thrilling to see. Apart from anything else, the ridiculously strong cast they had. Hmm. That, but yeah, I think you need to give a bit of time for the amplitude of Dickens. A lot of Dickens' effect is is from sheer piling up of things and yeah. piling up of events and coincidences and characters. And so I would I would really want to do you know, it's possible. In in my last year at the shore, I shall you know, it's traditional that the artistic director does their vanity project and bankrupts the theatre before they leave it. <laughs> so that that might be mine. So you're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to build an island on Niagara Falls itself for the prison ship? How are you going to do it? Well, I, oh, it wouldn't take that much to bankrupt us, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> All it would take would be one expensive show in the theatre that people don't come to. So so make it, make, better make sure it's your last one then, so you can just yeah. get out of there, leave it for your successor. Big Expectations is a good title. Maybe I need to do Barnaby Rudge. Barnaby Rudge, Tim, with, with a puppet of grip somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and no, then but, at the end, I can say it was all the fault of that bloody Dominic Gerard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, well, well, Tim, I know you're very busy at this time of the role of the year. I won't keep you any longer, although I'd love to talk for much longer. But this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's always lovely to talk to you, Dominic. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Tim. All the best. Thank you for listening to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire. If you'd like to hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe to us and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.